They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. And we're back. And by we're, I didn't mean we're. It's just me, Louis. Uh, Louis Fertel, back to host Keep It. Uh, Ira is gone. You have to ask him where he went. And I don't even know what social media he's allowed on anymore. So I can't confirm or deny that he'll respond. But today, we have an amazing guest with us. And he also doubles as my friend. So it should be pretty juicy. Uh, he is an acclaimed movie writer for the New York Times. But more importantly now, he's a New York Times bestselling author of Blood, Sweat, and Chrome, The Wild and True Story of Mad Max. So we're going to get into the uh, insanity of Fury Road with him. It's Kyle Buchanan. Welcome to Keep It. Welcome back to Keep It. Thank you for having me, Lewis. I was just thinking last night, how long have we known each other now? I met you when I was an intern at The Advocate in 2007. That was the, <sighs> the summer of things like Eve's Tambourine. It comes back to me <laughs> really vividly. Kelly Rowland's Like This was playing a lot. Fergie's Big it, Girls Don't Cry. I'll stop. And, it has straight up been 15 years then. Yes. No. Wow. Very vile. I can't believe it. And uh, <laughs> uh, Kyle, importantly, uh, Kyle was the film critic at The Advocate at the time. And he was like, you should come, when you move to LA permanently, you should come to this poker night I throw and I didn't realize it was a poker night of just gay guys so you went there and you know I was like 22 at the time and I realized all of the references that dazzled all the straight people in my life were completely commonplace among this group <laughs> I needed a new personality immediately I was still very dazzled I remember when I met you when you were an intern and you could just speak about Valerie Bertinelli or the supporting actress race in 1954 like it was nothing Yes. Uh, not something that I think most 22-year-olds are capable of doing. Um, I also remember when I met you, you were a very layered person. And I mean that very literally. Um, I believe our friend Andrew Colon used to call you Scarfy. Yes. Because you would wear dress shirts, sweaters, and scarves in Southern California. Yes. And, well, I was very confused because I moved there in January. And so I assumed, oh, it'll be, you know... Chilly. I, 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 as an underweight person at the time, I simply needed them. You know, it's, I, I, it's like, do you remember the Wayside School books? How uh, there was a guy, uh, a guy who turned out to just be a couple of dead rats, and he was wearing a bunch of uh, trench coats <laughs> over them. That was like me. I was mm -hmm. that person. Um, yes, Kyle has always been not just somebody who uh, appreciates film really well to me, but is just thrilled to talk about it, thrilled yeah. to get into any era, and you are specifically an Oscars junkie. And that's why today we will be getting into this incredible, and by incredible, I mean extremely long Oscars uh, journey we've been on this year. I don't think there's ever been an, a longer Oscars journey, has there? <laughs> there was, and it was last year. Okay, true. So to have the longest season followed by, you know, just about the second longest Oscar season, it's taxing. You know, it's glamorous, but it's taxing. 
Um, we will have a conversation also about Mad Max Fury Road, but also just about our favorite stuff in popular culture that was extremely arduous to make. Uh, to give people just a quick um, glimpse into the insanity of Mad Max Fury Road, that movie came out in 2015. Mm-hmm. When was the when was the seed planted for this movie initially? I mean, it basically took two decades. Yeah. This is one of the sort of craziest making of stories ever because, you know, they were supposed to make it a million times and it just kept falling apart. It was supposed to get made in 2003 with Mel Gibson. Fell apart right as they were about to start shooting it. They had to, you know, melt down 120 vehicles that they'd built. Um and it kept kind of getting resurrected and stomped out over the years. And even then, when they did get to make it with Tom Hardy and Charlize Theron, the two of them hated each other. They were filming out in the desert. Nobody knew what they were doing. People were terrified it wasn't going to work. Uh, all this real act of God shit kept happening that, you know, was essentially telling the director, George Miller, hey, listen, don't make this film. The, the fates are against it. We've decided absolutely not. And yet... He kept persevering, even when the studio shut the film down before they filmed the beginning and ending, and somehow made it work until they got to a movie masterpiece. And that was the crazy part for me. Like, you know, I really like this movie, but what I really love are these making of stories. I've always been fascinated by like, you know, there's that book of uh, John Gregory Dunn and Joan Didion when they were working on a, a, a drama about, you know, tortured newswoman, Jessica Savage. And it ends up being the really glossy Michelle Pfeiffer romance up close and personal. And I love those, you know, those stories about juicy, crazy making of movies. They just usually are about movies that don't turn out so hot. And I wanted to write a book about, you know, a really tortured, difficult production that somehow produced a masterpiece i was gonna say this movie is not just um now a modern classic of action movies it is utterly streamlined like the editing choices are so specific to this movie it's almost its own language in terms of swiftness and the you know the the whiplash factor of that movie uh, and also what a um a credit to the oscars that it is the best picture nominee because even among the, ba- the past decade what other movie is even comparable to that you know it's like its, its own yeah. genre of of prestige It's crazy that that got, I mean, not just 10 nominations and six wins, but that was in the mix for picture, probably would have won director if The Revenant weren't there. And I mean, which movie are you still talking about and thinking about from that year? It's not The Revenant. It's Mad Max Fury Road. You know, I mean, yeah, it's so utterly streamlined. It's such good action. I just keep talking to other directors, and there's plenty of them interviewed in the book, that don't understand how he pulled it off. I mean, Steven Soderbergh has a great quote about Fury Road where he says, I don't understand how they're not still shooting that film and I don't understand how hundreds of people aren't dead. Um, Also, I do want to say about The Revenant, though, Tom Hardy in that movie, I do think that's one of the great villain turns of the past 10 years, though. He's really fun and that movie sometimes takes itself way too seriously and and listen, you'll learn a lot about Tom Hardy if you read this book, but he never takes himself completely seriously. He will go out there and do like complete Looney Tunes takes. He has this acting method where he wants to fall flat on his face and find out what the scene isn't until he can get to what it is. And sometimes directors leave in the Looney Tunes takes. Does the memory of Tom Hardy's MySpace still linger with you at all? 
I mean, yes, I'm a gay man. Of course I remember <laughs> Tom Hardy's MySpace. He really was the blueprint. He yeah. set the template. These, I mean, d- yeah, the thirst trap pictures did not exist before Tom Hardy was shooting them the way he shot them. With that, like, overhead view, those pursed lips, uh, the uh, clothing artfully uh, uh, disheveled and... and yeah, what did what did you make of those pics? No, I mean, I, I mean, it, 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 the blueprint is correct because they were very sexy, of course. But it was it's the kind of thing where you rarely got a glimpse into a celebrity like that. Like, were they really like as slutty and gay as the people I knew? It's just that's that was a very unfamiliar feeling, you know. And now with Instagram, we know yes, they are right. Uh, but back then, yeah, in the MySpace era, it was a revelation. We were a good fifteen years off from Lil Nas X. That's how that's mm-hmm. where we were in time, unfortunately. Um, uh, also, this episode, Ira will be here to talk with our friend Danny Pellegrino. Uh, you know him as the maybe foremost Bravo historian and defender of the Rosie O'Donnell show's legacy. And you better believe I get into that with him. Uh, So we'll be right back after this. Well, Women's History Month isn't over yet. And I have lobbied so hard for this. So good for them. This week on an all-new episode of Hysteria, Aaron and Alyssa are joined by fashion consultant, author, and magazine editor, Stacey London. Oh, I love Stacey London, queen of the silver streak, to discuss women's beauty standards and society's preconceived notions of menopause. New episodes of Hysteria drop every Thursday wherever you get your podcasts. Guys, What Not to Wear was so much better than it needed to be. All right, well... I want to be the foremost Oscar authority, but actually it could be Kyle Buchanan at this point. So we're going to combine forces, talk about this labyrinthine and unending Oscar season. And let's just talk about it in the broad strokes first. What have been your favorite kind of trends to emerge in terms of wins this season? Things that you've just really enjoyed seeing pop up. uh, People you've enjoyed seeing pop up on the dais time and again. Honestly, love Troy Kotzer and what's happening with him this season. I remember when I saw Coda, you know, I mostly like Coda and Coda is one of those films that you can recommend to just about everybody, which you can't do with all the Oscar movies. Um, Does it have a million endings? Yes. Are they all effective? Yes. Uh, Are we going to forget all of the music teacher scenes because they are just from a completely different film that's not as good as the rest of it? Yes, everyone already has. Uh, But Troy Kotzer as the dad is so incredible. And I remember when I watched it, I thought this is the stuff that supporting actor Oscars are made of, but they'll never go for this guy because, you know, he's not famous or maybe the movie's too little. And then Apple bought the movie for $25 and they were like, no, we are making him a huge star. And he has become that, you know. He went from being just kind of this this character actor, you know, who'd never really had a big uh, uh, mainstream movie before uh, because there are just aren't enough roles for deaf actors to the star of award season. He gives the most charming speeches. He's so funny. He's so charismatic. He has such a great story. And to see him become the Oscar front runner has been a real pleasure. Um, I love when people emerge from nowhere, not just to be Oscar contenders, but seem primed to give great speeches. Because, by the way, there are plenty of veterans who get this opportunity, who finally have their Oscars moment, and then the speeches don't deliver. I am still stunned by the stodginess and staginess of Brad Pitt's run for the Oscar. (laughs) 
which was scripted. I'm a stand-up now, but bad. Yeah, he got all of his friends to write jokes for him, which was a choice. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a real science to it. And I do think when people are voting for the Oscars, they're not just thinking about the performance. They're not just thinking about where this falls in your career. They're thinking about what is that moment that's going to happen when you are up there giving an acceptance speech. And they're not going to vote for a dry one. They want an emotional one. They want a narrative. And he's absolutely providing that. You know that he will knock that moment out of the park. You know, another person whose speeches uh, deserve revisiting is Yunya Jung from last year in Minari. Yes. She approached everything sort of kind of unimpressed with the uh, grandeur of the situation, th- happy to be there and gave great interviews. Like she was not an aloof person. But then at the mic, she always like dropped two to three like subtle bombs that you remembered. And then she would just move on. It was really, really great. Every- Every single show, that's who you were talking about. Those are the speeches you were talking about. And that's how she went from, you know, one of the people who could potentially win supporting actress to like the mortal lock. Yes. Everyone wanted another speech from her. Totally, totally. Now, I, I think the most or the strangest category this year has become best actress. And by the oh way, this never happens. We never are this unbelievable. I guess deadlocked is not the term now. It feels like it's down between two or three contenders at this point. But when the five of these women were nominated, and I'm talking about Jessica Chastain in the eyes of Tammy Faye, Kristen Stewart in Spencer, Nicole Kidman in Being the Ricardos, Penelope Cruz in Parallel Mothers, and Olivia Coleman in The Lost Daughter, all five of these people are I don't want to call them equally August, but like you, it, it, it's easy for, I think, voters to admire all five of these people. It's, you know, there's not like a completely uh, out of left field contender like Yalitza Aparicio in Roma, where like we have to learn who this person is, basically. These are five people who have established um, legacies and the wins have not shaken out the way I expected. I even when I saw the eyes of Tammy Faye which I think Jessica is great in, probably in her top two performances for me. I still thought this feels like a fifth place contender in the Oscars race. And I had not seen any of the other four movies yet. How did you feel about that performance? I don't love the movie. You know, the thing about going to all these award shows is they will always show a clip. And you know, I love an Oscar clip. And she's got a great one, which is, you know, literally drawn from real life. It is the broadcast of her talking to, uh, you know, an AIDS patient. And it's incredibly affecting. But that's, you know, a scene that they can basically transcribe. And everything else they made up, it wasn't working for me. The prosthetics were not working for me. Andrew Garfield looked like he had, you know, cut a potato in two and glued them (laughs) to the sides of his face. And I found that really hard to get over. I'm sorry. I I do think she's really talented and she's great in that scene. She also had a take, which I don't think the director did. Um, it's a hard thing. I think what you're getting at here is that, you know, none of these performances come from best picture contenders. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you do get that disconnect with the Academy because historically they value, uh, you know, actor driven movies rather than actress driven ones. And certainly you don't have to come from the most critically acclaimed film of the year to win an Oscar. You know, people weren't obsessed with Judy, but Renee Zellweger got that in an easy walk. It just seems crazy to me that it could end up being Jessica's because even when she won at the Screen Actors Guild Award, she was shocked. She's like, really? Me? And then the Critics' Choice Awards, which are um, a group of very suggestible dummies who uh, (laughs) go wherever the wind is blowing, also went for Jessica Chastain. And I guarantee you that would not have happened if it weren't for SAG. So I'm curious. I mean, she's got two televised wins now. 
that could be enough. At one point, though, I thought maybe this was going to be Nicole's second Oscar. And it feels like, here's the thing. Nicole is getting a second Oscar at some point. So you feel like cosmically, you're trying to predict the moment that will occur in the way that you know Meryl will get a fourth because it would be just be uncomfortable for her to pass away. And then there's a Catherine Hepburn out there who's achieved more Oscars than Meryl has. But honestly, I liked being the Ricardos more than I think most people did. And by the way, I am here not to appreciate Aaron Sorkin. To say that I am sitting here and want like this the same setup he always has of, like one character in a scene gets to be brilliant and three people are quibbling with him and he gets to shoot down each of those characters with some uh, mean bon mot. Uh, I, I just, I find it very repetitive and, and predictable, but I thought Nicole gave Lucille Ball a kind of frightening gravitas that she would have. Lucille mm-hmm. Ball would be that way. I, I found it justified. Do you think it would be just and right for her to win her second Oscar for it? Well, I just heard recently that if she won, she would be the only woman to win two Oscars for biopic roles. So really? that, yeah, that would actually kind of thrill me because Virginia Woolf and Lucille Ball have nothing in common. So that alone would tell you the story of Nicole Kidman's range. Um, I would like it as a win, and not because I'm wrapped up in the, uh, the the Lucille Ball part of it, but the snappy, cynical performance that she gave, I find completely um, out of sync with the rest of Nicole Kidman's brand and therefore even more impressive than what you see on screen when you compare it to everything else she's done. You know, I've spent the past 15 years praising things like birth or, you know, her, her weird 2000s moments when it's like, this is impressive and in your face. Yeah, I'm generally pro Nicole and I do like her in this. The hard part for me is that I know that they went to Kate Blanchett first. Oh, I know. No, which and would she be would great. Have ate. Yes. I mean, yes. she literally would have ate. They would not have had to take down the sets afterwards. She would have eaten them whole. <laughs> she would have unhinged the jaw. And, you know, it, I, I do think that, like, Nicole's comic verve as Lucille Ball is a little more kind of, like, shy and bashful. And you know that Kate Blanchett would have been, like, totally unabashed. And I'm always obsessed with, like, you know, who almost got cast uh, or the sort of what if alternate versions like with Fury Road in the in the book you have Eminem in the mix you have Rihanna in the mix Jennifer Lawrence in the mix and you think about those and you're like but it wouldn't have been as good as what we got and with Kate oh, no shade to Nicole but that's the version that I would have rather seen yeah I mean like because well also Kate specializes in that like frosty 50s glamour you know not just because of Carol but because of like even a performance in like Cinderella where she's delivering hard Joan Crawford, for example, you know, she's just like primed for that era specifically. Um, I guess we should talk about the, I guess, most unfortunate award show story of the week, which is Jane Campion's unbelievable weekend. (laughs) Let's see. Sam Elliott. We talked about this last week on the show slammed the power of the dog because he, I guess, believes there has never been a gay person in the West. His argument was shallow and she abruptly shut that down, called it homophobic, uh, called his treatment of her work sexist, called them xenophobic. And then he, she spelled out the word B-I-T-C-H, which somehow was, at the time, staggeringly funny. And that was that was funny and iconic. And the fact that she spelled it out called him a little bit of a B-I-T-C-H. I mean, part of why that was so funny is because I guess she was probably doing it to be, 
you know, less vulgar on the red carpet, but it created the very funny implication that Sam Elliott is a child who cannot read, uh, <laughs> that he would not know what she was saying, which made it even funnier. Yes. And then she gave a speech at the Critics' Choice Awards where she, you know, she's given several speeches. So mm-hmm. uh, she was at the Critics' Choice Awards. And this one was, I think, more off the cuff than the average award show speech. She was sort of just looking around the room, talking to people. But a soundbite was picked up from it that is disastrous. Kyle, I'll allow you to recount your viewing of it. Yeah. Okay. Well, first of all, the soundbite is, you know, she got up there. She's up there on the stage. And here's the thing. And I I also want to say I hesitate to completely over explain this because also it's just like, are you fucking dumb? Like, don't denigrate Serena and Venus, even in the context of a joke. But, you know, you get up there, you see, okay, the the very first thing you see is a table where Will Smith and Serena and Venus Williams are sitting and you start talking to them. You know, this is what happens at an award show. Whoever, you know, with the bright lights are on you, whoever the first person you see is, and sometimes that's a very famous person, is who you start talking to. If Oprah is in an award show, every single person who goes up and accepts an award is going to start talking to Oprah because they're all that they can see. So I did wonder if she just sort of saw them and just started talking um you (laughs) know if you watch the if you watch the entire speech it is a white knuckle ride from start to finish because she is just kind of vamping and going wherever her brain takes her um at one point she was asking will smith for tennis lessons and i know that that's you know he's playing you know sort of a coach figure in king richard but she came off as even in that sort of like, you know, joking uh, New Zealand way, she came off as weirdly demanding of like their attention and labor and and completely um, uncomprehending of the optics of that situation. So, yeah, to just to say that to Venus and Serena and she's since apologized. But wow. Yeah. Live by the social media sword, die by the social media sword, because within 24 hours, she went from being, you know, the Internet folk hero that everyone was rooting for to you know, the uh, the example held up uh, of the shortfalls of white feminism. Yes, she she addressed them initially by saying somewhat randomly, I play tennis, too. I stopped playing because I got tennis elbow, which, you know, garnered some minor applause. And then in her attempt to segue to talking about the other nominees in her category, which were all men. Uh, This is the best director category. She said, Venus and Serena, you're such marvels. However, you don't play against the guys like I have to. The way she said it, it's like you could, I mean, of course, you just said the words like white feminism. This is a part of it. She couldn't hear how disastrous that sounded. And she could. And because like people, she said it in a sort of lighthearted way. You can even hear people sort of reacting, not supportively, but like not recognizing uh, the implications of what she had said. This was not just bad. It was downright shitty. It was her, the joke depended on the reaction shot, the approving reaction shot of Venus and Serena. So in a way they were sitting there having to okay this comment so that she could move on with her speech. So that's doubly uncomfortable. And of course, I, I, I don't mean to laugh. It's not funny. The idea that Venus and Serena Williams have not, dealt with any patriarchal issues in the sports world. Uh, And also that Jane Campion does because she's in in an award show category against other nominees. The one-for-one parallels obviously don't work out there. Uh, I mean, I, I, I... 
it's the kind of thing where, again, because the speech started out lighthearted, you almost want to say, I mean, it was just an accident. She didn't know what she was saying. But reading it back, it's like it's it just gets worse and worse the more you think about it. And I go back and forth because sometimes I'm like, I think she might have actually, I mean, you know, not known what a controversy would stir. But like, I wonder if she kind of did know what she was saying. I think she thought it was a clever concept, an idea, a line. And actually, the thing with Jane is for as scattered seeming as that speech is, she also knows what she wants to say and she can make it sound organic and off the cuff. I mean... You know, the B-I-T-C-H line is yeah. a great example because she had said that to someone else on the red carpet before she got to Mark Malkin in the video clip that went viral. She had said it to Scott Feinberg in a podcast, which was published after, you know, all that happened. But like she used the exact same terminology. She called him a little bit of a B-I-T-C-H in every single one of those interviews. She just made it sound like she was thinking of it at the time. So I wonder if she thought, oh, here's a clever idea. Like, you know, and I'm going to acknowledge that I compete against men in my category, which, you know, normally I would appreciate a little bit of that, you know, candor when people actually do say, no, listen, this is what the situation is. But to do it at the expense of Venus and Serena was so boneheaded. And I've had a lot of people ask me, oh, do you think this is going to affect her, you know, Oscar candidacy and I doubt it just because like a (laughs) Oscar voters are so much less online than you think they probably have no idea I mean these are the people who voted for Green Book too you know so um and B she's so far ahead in best director that that's almost certainly going to go to her but it absolutely does affect you know what should be just this like unalloyed celebratory moment for her is compromised and she has no one to blame but herself for that. You know what? In, in terms of the white feminism angle, too, I think something that sh- continues to surprise me about this is you would almost think she would do the patronizing thing of saying, we're both against the men. We both have had to fight fight our behind-the-scenes battles against men. But instead, she literally said, no, you don't, I do. Like, it's yeah. like e- even somehow worse than the normal idea of the patronizing comment you would make in that situation. I don't know if she even could have gotten away with being like, what we do is the same. Yeah, right. No, <laughs> Let alone right, that it's obviously, different. Obviously. Because they, yeah. are, they are true goddesses who happen to, like, share a planet and, in that case, an awards ballroom. And to even, you know, look upon them and be like, we're, we're in the same realm or my shit is more difficult is a, a truly crazy reaction that, you know, having seen them uh, up close, uh, I, I don't I can't imagine a human ever having, you know, they are they're incredible icons. Um, and, you know, I mean, what Jane Campion has done in her, in her own career should not be diminished, but. Come on. Yeah. Come on, James. What the fuck? Oh, God. Oh, God. Also, it's just, again, like, I obviously came into this award season this week being just so in Jane Campion's quarter. Oh, everybody's learning who Jane Campion is. Oh, people might start watching Portrait of a Lady or whatever, (laughs) you know, that Holy Smoke movie with Kate Winslet Mm -hmm. or, you know, the fucking piano, whatever. Yeah, the one where she pees. Yes, (laughs) that's the one. (laughs) Uh, And now I'm like, you know what? Scrap it. I just, I just, it really has knocked the wind out of my sails at a part, uh, at at a certain juncture in award season well it's exactly what we're saying listen the speech is a key part and if you're giving speeches all season which you know she has been and troy kotzer has been you gotta learn from these things and you can't drink 
too much before you get up on stage. Mm. Not saying that she was or that anybody was, but like you got to be focused. You got to know like what you want to get up there and do. You know, hopefully once you're up there, some sort of emotional, spontaneous moment overtakes you. And it, 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 it gives that extra X factor to what is and what should be prepared. Um, but don't let that spontaneous moment steer you in the way that it steered Jane Campion. Um, speaking of speeches, though, and Oscar-worthy moments, what are the moments in Oscar's history that keep you sort of loving the ceremony, if you do? I don't know if, you've, if, if cynicism is creeping in yet, but I have these hallmarks that are like, well, that'll always be there, and that'll always remind me that this has the potential to be rad. Cynicism always creeps in, but then also, you know, I mean, I think to love the Oscars is to have the right mixture of reverence and irreverence, yeah. you know, and that's also the key to hosting the Oscars well, um, that to some extent you do have to respect the thing and love the thing while also tweaking the thing. It's always so much fun to go back and, and rewatch uh, old Oscar speeches, you know, whether it's something like uh, Anna Paquin accepting that, you know, to keep the campion train rolling which is so charming and she's so great. And I've always wanted to dress as her for Halloween, uh, <laughs> accepting that Oscar with, you know, that purple outfit and the, what the beret. Yep. yep. Um, uh, I quote these speeches all the time. Uh, Marsha Gay Harden saying, what a thrill. What a, or, thrill. Uh, what a thrill. You know, the, ex- the incredible, the entire thing uh, that Marianne Cotillard says, which I have practically memorized. What are your favorites? Oh, well, I mean... You know what? I, I think it's fair to say that Marion Cotillard is the best speech of the past twenty years. Just in terms of think? the, just in terms of the exhilaration level. And by the way, not that it was a foregone conclusion that she would win. There are lots of interesting candidates that year. She's up against Elliot Page and Julie Christie, uh, but she had won a number of times. So to get that spontaneous seeming speech, which again could just be brilliant acting, Marion Cotillard is one of these genius actor people. Um, but thank you, life. Thank you, love. I mean, does it get more id-based than that? You're just like talking to forces in the universe as if they're, you know, producers in the room. There uh, are angels in this city. Uh, <laughs> Taking okay, the so- name of the city literally. Brilliant. <laughs> I know. That's good. That's good. See, that's where spontaneity ought to lead you. But, Lewis, I'm curious because you do love your vintage wins. Oh, yes. Is there an accepted speech on YouTube from an earlier era that people ought to seek out? Well, the, interesting question because... My answer is not a win that I am obsessed with, but in terms of brevity, being memorable, delivering an entire personality in a Yunya Jung way, Ruth Gordon and Ruth, Rosemary's mm. Baby is your answer. She's obviously quippy. This is uh, if, if you don't know about Ruth Gordon, she you, if you've if you've seen her in a movie, you've probably seen Harold and Maude or Rosemary's Baby. But she was a screenwriter for years who wrote with her husband Garson Kanan, uh, for instance. Uh, Hepburn and Tracy movies like Adam's Rib and Pat and Mike. And then she also had this kind of squirrely presence as, as an actress. And she was nominated a couple times in the 60s for a Natalie Wood movie called Inside Daisy Clover. And then she won for uh, Rosemary's Baby. Uh, you've got to see this. Uh, she, she ends the speech, and it's a short speech, by saying, thank you to the people who voted for me. And if you didn't, and if, and if you didn't please excuse me. Really great. And just charges off the screen, uh, charges off the stage. She's excited to win her award. Um, that's an interesting win, though, because f- uh, happily, it's a win for a horror movie, which, as you and I know, is extremely rare when it comes to the Oscars. Mm-hmm. But she's winning for what I would call a sitcom performance. She's giving the nose. She's doing the nosy neighbor, and then you find out plot wise 
at the end of the movie, oh, she's this sinister um, nefarious thing that's been a guiding force throughout the movie. But that really has nothing to do with her acting. And I feel like they conferred the greatness of her character turn, which is all written down in the script with what she did on screen. So mm-hmm. I don't know that it's an extremely dynamic win, but that's, you know, she's a very memorable celebrity. And also, of course, I have Sandy Dennis over my shoulder who won for Who's Afraid of Virginia <laughs> Woolf, my favorite Oscar winning performance of all time. Do you have a favorite uh, number one of all time? Oh my God, that's a good question. Well, I mean, it would have to be an actress, right? Because who cares when the actors win anything? No, I, um, I'm shocked that we give <laughs> actors Oscars. What do they do with them? You know, I think I think my favorite wins have something to do always with the acceptance speech. I kind yeah. of tie them together. And and actually, I do love that Ruth Gordon win and you recalling what made that so special. Here's my last bit of Oscar acceptance speech advice. Have an exit line. Ding. Because sometimes people just trail off. If you know that last little couplet that you want to hit, first of all, that like that ends you on a great note, that gets you off the stage, and that's the thing that takes it from like a good speech to one that everybody rises out of their seat to applaud. Excellent point. Excellent point. Uh, yeah, anyway, allegedly the Oscar season is wrapping up soon. I don't know if this is true. <laughs> this is just a rumor we've heard. but I'll believe it when I pass out. Right, right. Uh, and I look forward to seeing what you write about it, of course. We will be right back with our good friend Danny Pellegrino. Keep It is brought to you by Barefoot Dreams. Lewis? Yes? When you see Footprints in the Sand, that was when I carried you in my Barefoot Dreams rub. Now, is that a Leona Lewis song? (laughs) No? Uh, If you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams, especially now as the brand is celebrating their 30th anniversary. With those 30 years of coziness, Barefoot Dreams celebrates being the originators of everyone's favorite luxe home blanket. And while many have attempted to duplicate their blankets, robes, and more, Barefoot Dreams' fabrication and quality cannot be replicated, so don't believe the dupes. Girl, this blanket is it. I effing love this blanket. I'm thinking about it right now, and I want to jump in my bed, which is sponsored by something that we'll do another ad for momentarily. Get ready. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Jesus, get a life, Oprah. My God. (laughs) Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort as their collection of ultra-soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are made with premium materials. Their products make the perfect gifts, too. Uh, I throw this thing on. I wear it like a shawl. I look exactly like Ellen Burstyn. And <laughs> I am the coziest a human being can be. Because by the way, it's still that time in Los Angeles where it's like pretty mild outside and then your apartment is cold. I can't explain mm. it. I don't know things like basic science. For Keep It listeners, you can get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code KEEPIT15. Don't miss out on Barefoot Dreams soft, soothing fabrics that will bring luxury to your life. He is your go-to source for all things Bravo, rom-com, and Rosie O'Donnell related. And he's coming for your shelves with his first solo memoir, How Do I Unremember This? Unfortunately True Stories. Please welcome Danny Pellegrino, who I I have known for Hello. way too damn long. I know, Ira, you were one of my very first friends here in Los Angeles. We've known each other Same. for 
years, ages even. And I'm sure we both have very embarrassing stories of each other, but I'll try to keep my mouth shut. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I've I've said this to you before, um, but it is... It is so weird looking back at like 2007, um, you and I meeting and just like talking about uh, random shit like this in person. And then now seeing that like we both have our own separate podcast where we just talk about this every week. I know because I remember, you know, we would watch Housewives. I remember watching Real Housewives of Miami, which then took a long hiatus and is now back. But I remember watching that with you. I have very vivid memory of of watching uh, Leah Black with you for some reason. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the world uh, the world has gone through so many ups and downs since we've met. But yeah, I I love you so much. And and you know, there was a moment we did watch What Happens Live together, and it was a weird kind of moment because like you said we had watched these things and then here we were on this talk show together it was it was bizarre and, and wild and i loved it uh well we're next gonna bully andy cohen into having us both on the show at once do you ever have moments where you're like oh i'm actually too close to the thing i used to be obsessed with like you know like when you get to know andy cohen are you like oh, oh no there's like no intrigue left in this thing you know, the weird thing is the taking of the notes. Like when I watch Housewives now, I'm I'm writing crazy notes. And so that gets a little weird. And sometimes it can be frustrating, especially when the shows are not great, like when the seasons are bad or or it's not super fun to recap. I think that that's when I'm like, oh, I got to go take notes and record. And and it used to be if I was watching a bad episode, you're just done with it and you you wait till the next week. But now having to like do an hour show about it can be a little frustrating Mm. but uh, usually there's always some like good little hidden gems in the episodes too so it's not all for naught but yeah that's what's frustrating to me that's so interesting to me because you know i've been on your show and you know like we've been on like bitch sesh and i've done like watch what crap ends you know like shows that um recap like um bravo shows um and I remember writing like recaps of things, you know, back in sort of like my um, like Vulture days or like MTV News days. But it's there's something particularly interesting about a podcast that will recap a television show. And I want to know what have you figured out about how your listeners um, digest recaps like are there certain things that they're always looking for specifically from you like do did you notice like when people would get mad if you'd like um like leave out certain scenes or if you didn't like describe everything perfectly and like do you find that like most people oh yeah just watch it and then love to recap it because it's like listening to a friend describe what they've already seen or do some people like listen and they haven't even watched it yeah, I think there's a couple different types of listeners. I think there's the one who they want you to get every fact right. And the, the truth is, especially for my show, like I'm a solo podcast. So there's often times where I miss something or I'll run to the bathroom or the Internet I'll cut out because I'm watch I'm streaming it. And so it'll be I'll get some fact or detail wrong. And so there's half the audience who will get so mad that I said her shirt was blue instead of green and. And uh, they want it to be, you know, recap perfectly. And then there's the other person who they're just here tuning in to have a good time. And so they, uh, you know, I, I don't have to get every detail perfectly. And I think a lot of my listeners, I hope at least they are happy when I go off on little tangents or, or tell details about my personal life, which is really like kind of where my book started, because I would tell these stories about my family or, or a date I had or whatever it was. And I would I call them these little like detours. And so I think a lot of people 
started to to tune in, not just for the recaps, but for those stories. And I like that I can kind of take those tangents. I mean, a couple of weeks ago, I did a, a whole bit about um, Beethoven's second. And it's like, I like that I can just like talk about something insane and, and random for a while. But then there are definitely people, though, who get mad, you know, and, and I'm sure on your show, too, you guys get the DMs where they're like, how dare you said you said this wrong or you got a quote wrong or something. And you're like, I'm, we're doing our best. Most of our DMs just call us racist. <laughs> and yet not what's me. The crazy, yeah. What's the craziest what's the craziest complaint or DM that you've gotten on Keep It? I mean Well, well it's interesting. Like I, I mean, uh, speaking for myself, I think I'm known as the person who's like the Wikipedia movie guy. So I don't know that I get crazy responses, but if I get a fact wrong or something, people might be scandalized that I didn't get the thing right. They're like, Aren't you the knower person? So um that can get a little spicy. Um Ira, I think they just straight up say they want to smack you or something. Yeah. I'm trying to think of like some of the wildest DMs you get I've gotten, but it's like it's it's usually someone who just sort of like disagrees with you. Um and like, oh, you know what? We've talked about I think one time we talked about like this um racist country star. Uh I forget his name. Um, but we talked about him and I got this DM from this white woman who was like, you know, I can't believe that you are um you would say these things, et cetera. And like, for the first time I sort of responded to her and I was like, sis, what's good. And then we had like a good conversation, um, for like 20 minutes. And she was like, Oh, thank you. I didn't see things that way. Oh, wow. This yeah. is a very productive, so was, like Ricky so, Lake episode. You took the audience right. members rancor and calmed her down. Yes. That was nice. But I think that the other surprising thing is like, whenever you do get a DM from someone who's like, they didn't like something in the episode or they want to say something mean to you. Um, it's always funny to scroll up and see like positive things that they responded to like your other Instagram stories. It'll be like, Oh my God, love this movie. Like when you're watching like a movie they love or be like, Oh my God, your outfit looks great. Or like, Oh, what restaurant is that that you went to? And then next, the thing you said this week was so fucking awful, and I want to stab you. The meanest the me- message after that, yeah. With, with Housewives fans, there's all these these seasons that are just there. It's like a fever pitch in certain seasons. I remember the New York when it was like Bethany versus Carol. The DMs I got during that time were like truly wild and unhinged, and people were so passionate about whether or not they were Team Bethany or Team Carol, and it was like. I mean, I got just so many slurs in my DMs because I said I was Team Carol and it was just like crazy. (laughs) And I'm like, this is a reality show. And, you know, we're, you know, I'm just giving my opinion on a podcast, but it's silly, silly stuff like that. Or I remember the the Beverly Hills season where it was like the dog situation with Lisa Vanderpump. Everyone was just it was it was so people were so passionate about it in the DMs. I, I want to get into the um, gay adolescent traumas you describe in this book momentarily. But before we get there, on another pop culture angle, I mean, as Ira said at the beginning, you are the the, the premier Rosie O'Donnell show um, historian, basically. And I uh, this is a show I am always bringing up because I don't think we I have... Know, yes, we, <laughs> you and I, this is... We need to talk okay. about it. I know. Yeah. <laughs> like, we have not since had a talk show host who not only was like a fervent pop culture person but had specific taste and was not afraid to be like I didn't understand Blue Velvet you know like right. like she was like right. specific in her taste and the enthusiasm was so electric to me and I wanted you to talk about your connection to her and that show 
Yeah, well, I'm just remembering now. I think she spoiled Fight Club. Do you remember that? It was like this big. <laughs> yeah. She hated Fight Club and she like spoiled it on air. And, um, but yeah, I think as a young kid, I was really attracted to that. She loved what she loved and she wasn't afraid to embrace the things that she loved, even though it was sometimes off the beaten path. And and I think what I connected, even at a young age, when she would like something like Mary Tyler Moore or something that as a, a young preteen or, or however old I was, I didn't necessarily know Mary Tyler Moore at the time, but it made me want to know Mary Tyler Moore. Totally. It made me want to discover Barbara Streisand's uh, uh, discography. And like she made me want to become a fan of the things she loved because it was so honest. And, and you know, I often talk about how she was sort of like the first influencer because uh, throughout her show, she would talk about something like Tickle Me Elmo or Listerine or whatever the, uh, the, cakes that she used to like the i forget what the they're called but um she would talk about them and they'd be like a huge thing and and she would get press for these things but she was just very naturally talking about it It wasn't like a forced promo and i interviewed her on my show and she would say she only would do the things that felt natural to her so she wouldn't so many companies would send her stuff and she wouldn't just do a promo to do it she would do it if she liked it and she would tell people if she loved a movie or a tv show or a singer and that was how she influenced. It was based on her own taste. And I just always loved that. I loved how much she loved pop culture. I loved how she wasn't afraid to cry with a guest mm. or or feel the emotion. I think now, oftentimes, you can almost see a host disconnect uh, when they're talking to an interview subject or or they feel too much. I think like with Ellen, it's almost it feels too much like a peer talking. And so it's like, I don't think Ellen has an interest in talking to any of these people. And... You know, it's just there's a disconnect, whereas Rosie, she would have someone on and she would love them. She would know their history and she would show them her toys that she had in her collection. And and it just felt more authentic than I think a lot of talk shows do now. Also, I remember one time specifically, like she was like she turned to his his name is John McDee. Anyway, she turned to John McDee, the band leader. She goes, Gwen Verdon died. And then she like goes on a tangent about how great Gwen Verdon was. And it's like, that's a celebrity death. You could, I mean, like most talk show hosts would, or at any shows wouldn't acknowledge, you know, like that's an old name, maybe a forgotten name, but she's like, no, 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 no. Let me stick my neck out and be like, you have to know who this is. Go see the cocoon movies, whatever. Like that kind of curating and being like, this is a rad thing that will make you happy. You know, like she, yeah. it was so great. And so respectful too on her YouTube channel, she's uploading all these interviews. Every day she uploads one from the original show. And it's so apparent how many celebrities that were older or sort of past their prime at the time she would have on and give so much reverence to. It wasn't just like a a third segment on the show for three minutes. It was like they would be the main guest, even though it was clear in 96 or 97, they weren't a huge star anymore. But she paid them respect in a way that now you turn on a talk show and it's just they don't have those kind of people on anymore uh, if they're mm-hmm. sort of past their prime. No, I was always really inspired by that aspect. And I think I think, you know, like as pop culture uh, podcasts, it's like that's a thing that we've definitely taken in to keep it, you know, like um, and like I think you do as well. You know, it's like you realize people. I think growing up with stuff like Rosie's show, like create got this sort of um interest in nostalgia you know Mm -hmm. for lack of a better term you know when people who are you know may consider past their prime but you know it's there can be interest in people like that and movies like that and pop culture like that it's just that you know like you're constantly surrounded by people who want newer newer things um i 
and, would love to talk yeah. to Rosie O'Donnell about um, her love of Tom Cruise because that is the one thing that she and I have in common. And I wonder if she's the one who like did it Tom. to me. Tom, I wonder if she's the one who me? did it to me. <laughs> she did it. I love what you just said. And I think there's such a, the, the people who are sort of have been in the industry for a while, they have so, so much more interesting stories. I had Beverly D'Angelo on my show very early on. And it was like, her, it, it was so fascinating how when she was on the set of Hair, she had to be weighed every day. And she talked about like the pressure of that. And it's like these stories that have just sort of gotten lost in time that are very fascinating to uh, pop culture junkies like us. And I think that gets lost when you're just sort of chasing the next TikTok star or, or whoever it is uh, for an interview. I, I think those other people have more interesting stories. And the Tom Cruise stuff, I love the Tommy, can you hear me? Oh, yeah. But, uh, I know. I wonder what she thinks about him now. She likes him. He still she sends does. her. She, he still sends her, I think, on Christmas or her birthday. I forget which. Like a cake and a card. So she always says, uh, I heard an, uh, an interview. She said, uh, you know, he's uh, always been super nice, although she doesn't agree with the, mm-hmm. the other stuff. You know who I do think is generally good at bringing like uh, older celebrities and talking about their career comprehensively is Andy Cohen. Uh, when like right. when like Jane Fonda is on his show, I'm like, oh, we're going to actually get good questions here. Like people who have like ha- not just have an interest in her old movies or whatever, but like know what the gossip was about them even at the time and can interact with that. And like he, he's a little bit more salacious than a Rosie O'Donnell would be. But I'm always that's like the mode of Andy Cohen I, I like the most is like that. There's just an old school fag hanging out in there, you know. And I, I love that. And the research team at Watch What Happens Live, they always get these like hidden gems that I think we always want to know about. And mm-hmm. yeah, I prefer when he has those kind of guests on and gets to dive in and it's interesting when you look at the ratings, it's like when there's a housewife on, it's always like their highest rated. But I always love when he has just a random older celebrity. And I love that they pair weird people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now we have to get into this book. Namely, I, I, I'm always interested in reading about we're close to the same age, uh, gay adolescent trauma, because I'm like, oh, I wonder how relatable I will find this. The answer is extremely. The, <laughs> I was reading, I'm reading these stories. And I'm just like, well, I was there. Oh, Ryan Phillippe in that movie. I remember that look. Yep. All these things. What were you particularly excited to represent about that time in your life? Or were you excited? You know, I, I was very excited. I just wanted to be honest and open. And one of the things that was very important to me was like not shying away from like the gayness of all these conversations and, and the stories in the book. Because, you know, one of my favorite books as a, a, a young teen or when I was starting to come out of the closet when I lived in Chicago after college was like this book called Swish. And it was an author, uh, Joel Durfner. And it was him talking openly about uh, he, he had pop culture references. He talked about gay sex and relationships and all of these things that as a young person reading that, it was so influential to me because I thought, oh, look, my life can be OK, because at that time there weren't a whole lot of people in media who were gay. I mean, we had Will and Grace and we had a, a small handful of of people who were representative of the LGBTQ community, but it wasn't a ton. And so I. I want I wanted this book to not only be funny and have all the nostalgia and and family stories that are hopefully really funny to anyone but I wanted the the gay stuff to also be in there so that if there's some young kid in Ohio or in the Midwest reading it he can maybe see that you can be all of these things you can have a good relationship with your family you can have a career you can have uh gay sex you can have it all and not I'm 
maybe that sounded weird. You can have it all, but you you guys get what I mean. <laughs> well, gay sex is it all, so there you have it. Yeah, right. That's yeah, most important. <laughs> no, that, I, I used That's to think that way about um, Michael Musto. I remember reading all his uh, columns, his uh, Village Voice days, where it, 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 I related to not just the fact that he was clearly gay and. Uh, pop culture knowledgeable but like he treated the subjects with equal kind of admiration and suspicion like he he came in there with like a, a pre-existing sarcasm and that was his and his alone and then he got to have fun with them and go out with them too and it's like that's basically how i live my life you know it's like i may be rolling my eyes at you from time to time but i'm gonna have a good time with you too right mm. there's this little section where i was going through uh, kind of like the gay awakenings that I had around like 12-ish or whatever. And there were so many. And I kept emailing my editor to add them. It was supposed to be just like this little tiny paragraph where it said like, you know, Ryan Phillippe and Cruel Intentions. Mm-hmm. But I just kept thinking of so many. And I wanted to ask you guys, like, what was I? What was your, was there one or two that was your gay awakening that you remember seeing in pop culture, whether it be uh, well, I, in a movie, TV show? I have to say, when when you ask a question like this, I'm surprised how... Um, I think broadly familiar or like how I, a, a ton of people would say the things I'm about to say. Like, I, I, it's not like I had like a secret one that's like unusual or anything, but a, a main one is Jesse Metcalf on Desperate Housewives. Mm. Mm-hmm. That was like a particularly kind of porny hot that we, I wasn't used to seeing in prime time. Right. Uh, mine specifically is um, David Silvera from the band Corn <laughs> in those. Um, Here we go. Calvin Klein Jean commercials. Sorry, those Calvin Klein Jean ads that were in like magazines, like Teen People and shit, which I got because like you know, like Sarah Michelle Gellar was on the cover, but also like I really liked reading Teen People, Um, and I had a subscription to Teen People uh, in like middle school. Um, But they were like these dirty like CK ads. Like he was like sitting on top of a car or like laying in like the desert in them, Uh, and they were really hot to me. Yeah. Yeah. You know, just now that you're saying that, I'm thinking of the Candies ad with Mark McGrath. Which, oh, yeah. Yes. Mark McGrath. Yes. Uh, very seminal. Yes, definitely. And, and I mean, even speaking of like the teen people thing, I feel like there's a specific set of like um, younger gay men. Uh, and we probably all have like podcasts now and <laughs> right in the media. Uh, but who like as a kid had subscriptions to magazines like entertainment weekly rip the print version uh and like tv guide and things like that was that like a thing that you did or did you like devour like your parents versions of them because i remember specifically the point where i was like i need my own subscriptions to these things and i was allowed to have them as a kid yeah, I think Entertainment Weekly was so important to me. And I remember asking for that for my birthday. That was like the gift I wanted was a subscription to Entertainment Weekly. Like, I feel devastated that the print issue is gone because I still get the print issue. Uh, but that and then I remember there was a certain point where I asked for a details magazine because remember, it was like a little is details. Isn't details was a no, magazine. I- no, it was a magazine for faggots. <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah. It's not it's not still around. <laughs> it is a magazine that I would love to reboot or see like some sort of like um i don't know like netflix series about like the creation of details or something for a younger gay kid like details was sort of the alternative reading like a gq or esquire because that felt like oh these are like men in suits or whatever you know and like details always felt like it was 
a safe version of like the advocate. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I remember getting up at going to the Borders bookstore and I would get my like straight ish magazines or my USA Today and I'd put it over like the advocate and some of the gay magazines and then go read it in the corner of the cafe because. Yeah, you couldn't really get them all. Definitely. We definitely all have that. I think universal thing of um, how do you read the advocate or another gate or like out magazine at the bookstore um, without anyone knowing that you are reading this magazine. Oh. It's always like right. collecting it with the others, reading it like in the corner of the cafe. Oh, I remember very distinctly buying uh, my first Madonna CD, the Immaculate Collection, and sandwiching it between two Weird Al CDs. And uh, did you know that Mm -hmm. that was not clever? Because the woman at the counter (laughs) is scanning them and she goes, Madonna, like that. I was like, I thought we were in this together, lady ally. Uh, You know, I worked at a Borders and I remember a family friend who was married to a woman. He came with a stack and he didn't know that I worked there and he must not have seen me when he was in line but he came and he was buying a gay magazine sandwiched in between stuff and i'm like checking i'm checking him out and noticing it and i could see the look of terror <laughs> on his face because he was married in this was back in ohio and i don't even know what happened with I, he's still married but i it's like yeah i remember him, which good for him you know do whatever you want but i remember seeing <laughs> the look in his eyes and he, he like thought he was fooling borders but here i was who knew him checking him out I mean, that that was always the funny part of, you know, schemes that we all pulled, you know, to like, you know, n- feel like we were like hiding being gay, you know, because like taking the magazines up together. Um, it's I, I don't know what part of my mind thought that like, oh, he's just going to swipe past his magazine without knowing that I have out in it. Um, I actually I think I actually just stole out magazines and advocates. <laughs> you know what you gotta do what you gotta do. That's why they're no longer with us, uh, some and- of the magazines. <laughs> because you were stealing the Cheyenne Jackson fault. issue. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I and then once I started working at once I started working at the borders in Chicago, um, it was easier for me to just sort of like buy them um, without letting people know the bookstores i uh, me too. i love it i would say lastly my other gay awakening was at a borders bookstore it was literally right before i came out in college uh and there was this older gay man who was like one of my managers there and it was right when emancipation of mimi came out mm. and he was so into that album and i was so into that album um that he like i wasn't out yet but the way he talked to me and connected with me, it was like my first time like really having like an older gay adult friend. Uh, and I think, you know, Mariah Carey did that for me. And then I came out like a couple months later because I felt comfortable interacting with him. Lewis, I need Lewis, I'm sorry, I need to ask you because Ira's been on my show. I always ask my guests their favorite Mariah song. And since she came up, I just need to know yours. Oh, well, I mean, it, it does change often. But my answer is the MTV Unplugged version of Make It Happen. Yes, classic. The, the 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 sauciness of it. Not that she's not often a saucy performer, but I, that's my favorite album of hers. I love a short album, and uh, it's, it's just a complete slate. And you believe it? She's like, I believe in the stakes of that song when she sings it. Well, and that whole album it was such a fuck you to everyone because there, at that time everyone was saying, "Oh, she's not touring. It's all studio magic. She can't really sing. It's all studio magic because she was recording an album every year, so she couldn't tour." 
Uh, and so she did the unplugged and everyone's like, oh shit, she really can sing. Also, meanwhile, it, that's such a silly thing to think because I, obviously that's right. the era of like Millie Vanilli and like people yelling at Paula Abdul wondering if she was singing on the record and stuff. It's like, guys, does this sound like Millie Vanilli or Paula Abdul? Come on, do some detective work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love how uh, it still doesn't, I love how that shit still doesn't work now. Like everyone like, I love how the general public just assumes like people don't sing anymore like it comes every time like uh gaga does like a live performance or something there's always tweets where people are like oh my god she's a really good singer it's like what have you been missing yeah <laughs> that's exactly. that's the whole it's point evident. like she yeah. can sing danny thank you so much for being you we covered everything so thank you for covering absolutely everything with us oh my god my pleasure i love you both i love keep it i hope i didn't disappoint listeners because i just love you guys so much and thank you and buy my book that's exactly what they should do. And when we're back, art that was hell to make. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. So as we said, Kyle has written a beloved New York Times bestselling book, Blood, Sweat, and Chrome, which gets into the insane history of Mad Max Fury Road, a movie that I'm going to watch again right after this. By the way, isn't it like 90 minutes? It's two hours, but it flies by. Yeah. Truly flies by. It's it's like the way people it's listen dense. to a podcast on 1.5 speed. That's how this movie feels. <laughs> you know? Very that. Um, and so we're going to get into a conversation now about our favorite stuff that either took forever to make or was hell to make and, and ended up being something we loved. So it was ultimately worth it. Kyle, what uh, what's the first thing that comes to mind for you? Well, maybe it's because I've been recently rewatching it in the wake of And Just Like That. Ooh. But Sex and the City, I mean, it, people don't say it was hard to make, but I am scrutinizing every single Sarah Jessica Parker, Kim Cattrall scene. Right. Because they didn't get along. And that's something that they talked around for a long time. You know, Sarah Jessica Parker always said, no, 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 we got along. It was fine. You know, just... Some other stuff that won't be uh, spelled out but alluded to. Um, and then as the years went on, it became more evident that there was some sort of feud. Uh, Michael Patrick King, you know, who ran the show, said that basically there was Cynthia Nixon, there was Kristen Davis, there was Sarah Jessica Parker. They had their friendship click and Kim never mentally clicked over. And then, of course, you know, everything that was happening when they were going to revive the franchise and Kim said she wanted no part really went after Sarah Jessica Barker on Instagram. So I'm watching all of these scenes now kind of being like, I wonder what it was like to get those two women, you know, to sort of be able to hit those marks and completely convince us that they were best friends because they're really great together on screen and they don't shy away from having them, you know, share the space. So even if they weren't getting along or even if it wasn't easy, they really did manage to be professionals once that camera turned on. You know, it was not a, uh, uh, 
good wife situation where you had to CGI <laughs> in, you know, two women who hated each other when they were working, when, you know, when they had lines and, and characters to inhabit, they were incredible together. Uh, I, I think the tension could probably help in that case because um, it, it gives you something to break when you're having friendly moments on screen. And obviously those two characters in particular had such dynamic energy. Uh, I, by chance, have you seen Kim Cattrall's uh, Criterion Collection closet video? She did a closet video. Oh, she did. Oh, she, okay. Does now, she scat in it? No, she, she does not. That's a different video. Um, uh-huh. uh, I'm referencing two things here. First of all, the Criterion Collection does this thing where they invite, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson types usually, but occasionally actors into their closet to pick out, you know, uh, 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 prestigious and sometimes obscure films from their catalog in this big closet, and people explain why they like these movies. Uh, and anyway. Out of nowhere, Kim Cattrall did one, and she was giving, I've heard of movies. She was giving, uh, 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 I, I, I take this seriously, I'm prestige. And I do have to say, there was a bit of obvious pretense there in a way that I don't associate with Sarah Jessica Parker, Cynthia Nixon, or Kristen Davis. And to me, it sort of spelled out the differences between them. You know, I had heard for a long time that a little bit of Valerie Cherish mm-hmm. in the comeback comes from Kim Cattrall working with her on Sex and the City because they share Michael Patrick King in common. And it does make me wonder what Valerie Cherish would be like if she went to the Criterion Closet <laughs> and had to make sense of these movies that she has obviously never heard of. Oh my God. <laughs> picnic at Hanging Rock. I love a picnic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sex and the City is a great answer. Also, I just want to talk about the problem I have with Sex and the City, whereas if I put one episode on, I have suddenly watched seven. And not, oh, just, be- not just because... It, they're on E and you get like these 14 minute versions where like Samantha doesn't have a storyline because they can't say the word sex on E or something. But <laughs> uh, uh, those episodes just slip by. It is just the most bingeable TV for me. I feel the way really about is. that show the way most people feel about like, uh, I don't know, I guess Squid Game or something. Or breathing. Yeah. <laughs> right, <laughs> it breathing. happens so simply and you just keep doing it. Um <laughs> But yeah, no, it's it's fascinating to think about. I mean, like if you really want to get to a piece of art that's incredible, that was obviously hell to make, you know, because there have been literal rumors about it for so long. The album rumors by Fleetwood oh, Mac. I was going to bring it up. Christine McVie head. Yes, right. So we are mighty and incredibly quiet. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we are mighty and largely respectable. Uh, uh, yeah, no, I mean it's mind blowing that after that album came out in 1977 that we still don't have the definitive telling of that album and that there's not a musical or that there isn't a mini series or something. And, but I know I'm, I know I'm vexing it now. I know Ryan Murphy's licking his lips. I know it's going to occur, but um, obviously it's an incredibly strange story because first of all, that was a relatively new lineup for Fleetwood Mac only a couple years earlier for their uh, uh, self-titled album did Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks join the group. And then there were two women in a group, which aside from the mamas and the papas, it simply isn't done, people. Okay, <laughs> we, we were still integrating, integrating groups well into the 70s. Um, but you had all these clashing presences, people breaking up. Christine's hooking up with the lighting director. And mm-hmm. that's what the song You Make Loving Fun is about. My favorite track on <laughs> the album. I just had to name drop that song. But um, I think the weird thing about that album is, speaking of the Criterion Closet, it's what it really is, is like a Rashomon, right? It's like all Mm -hmm. these perspectives on a similar conflict kind of happening in the group. So you get uh, Lindsey Buckingham 
freaking out on secondhand news. You get uh, 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 Stevie Nicks talking about whatever gold dust is on gold dust women. You get <laughs> gold dust women. You get uh, Christine McVie uh, uh, sort of vying for optimism on don't stop. And I just want to say something that is so hard for me is that don't stop is probably her definitive Fleetwood Mac song. And it is easily not in my favorite 30 Fleetwood Mac songs or Christine McVie songs. So I always have to do a little bit of defense on her part. You know, it is crazy to me, like you said, that we haven't gotten any sort of movie or retelling of it. We're getting them about every musician or band that ever lived. And somehow there's not a jukebox musical about them creating rumors, especially given like all the crazy conflict and it's a juicy conflict of breakups and hooking up and having affairs. But my question to you is, if we did get a movie, who would you cast? Well, of course you remember, 10 years ago or so, there were there was supposed to be a Dennis Wilson biopic with Aaron Eckhart as Dennis Wilson. Mm-hmm. And Christine McVie, his lover, was supposed to be played by Vera Farmiga. Which, I mean, I, I think like th- that time has passed. It, it, it simply wouldn't work But still work out, no. incredible. Right. No. I mean, my hands were in the air. It's like I was on a roller coaster reading that variety blurb or whatever. But now who would I pick? God, who has that kind of like, first of all, the voice has to be there for me. So it has to have like a... I love that you're going straight to casting Christine McVie. Oh, not no, Stevie right. Nicks. Right. <laughs> the just, most important person in Fleetwood Mac to Louis Vertel is Christine McVie. Right. No, I'm sad that we even had to bring up Stevie. No, I, if, <laughs> if you will, this may seem crazy. I feel like Stevie is easier to act. Like in it's, a way. You know, uh, well, of course... Lucy Lawless and Stevie Nicks' Fajita Roundup from Saturday Night Live. One of the greatest and also shortest sketches of all time. Must You must go and find this because it is a brilliant comic portrayal of Stevie Nicks. But starting with Christine McVie, hmm, who's like the 30-something, tallish, bluesy, sophisticated person who could play that role? I mean, we were just talking about Florence Pugh. She's not 30. Uh, in the in the context of Madonna, who would it be? Do you have an, an answer? It's not coming to mind I was going to say Florence Pugh for Stevie. That could work. That definitely could work. Because she's... Florence, just anyway, has like that similar like whatever vibe. Like if, mm-hmm. she, if, if she were giving an interview and suddenly a tambourine appeared in her hand, I wouldn't be surprised, you know? And there's this sort of like throaty worldliness to her voice that I think she could do really effectively with Stevie. Yeah, right. Um, we could mocap. It could be Andy Circus. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Actually, we could mocap and it could be Louis Vertel. Oh, that's Anything true. Anything is possible these days. You know what? You know what I'll say? And this seems so basic. I'm still coming off the fumes of how good Emma Stone was in Battle of the Sexes. I thought that was a very underrated performance, and I think she could do Christine. I think she could. That would be interesting to see. Yes. Well, I mean, definitely if Christine ended up being the star of the film, as she would be if you were making it. That's uh, correct. Emma, Emma would have a juicy part to play. Do you have? Are, are you a fan of Rumors yourself? Are you a big fan of that album? Am I a fan of Rumors? Yes, I'm a fan of Rumors. I'm a fan of Fleetwood Mac just entirely. I mean, I love Tusk. Anytime I go on a road trip by myself, Tusk is the very first thing that I play for whatever reason. Yeah, I love it. I love Fleetwood Mac. Wouldn't you think Tusk was the album that the tumult that produced Rumors actually produced? Because Tusk is full of like weird half ideas. It's full of cokey energy. It's full of like, you know, the consternation feeling that was obviously in the band at the time. I do. I, Tusk has never been my favorite album. I like the song Tusk. I like uh, uh, Think About Me. 
Oh, Diane. But I, I much prefer actually the uh, self-titled uh, Fleetwood Mac, which has the great Christine McVie song, Say You Love Me, and also Warm Ways. Oh, I love watery music. Tusk is kind of like a Jane Campion speech. Not as problematic, <laughs> but you're really like, where's this going to go? Like, <laughs> right. You're white knuckling it the whole time. Do they, they mean surprises. this? Yeah, right. <laughs> Uh, do, do you know what uh, another movie that took forever to make that I think is a, a complete triumph is the original Toy Story took five years to make uh, I was actually shocked to learn that the original Sleeping Beauty was originally proposed in 1951 and then didn't get into theaters until 1959 I know animation yeah. is always a struggle but my god like is anybody that passionate about Sleeping Beauty like, like we, we simply have to get this wonderful story to the screen <laughs> Yeah, I remember reading that the big challenge with Toy Story wasn't just even like, you know, the computer generated graphics. It was making Woody less of a dick. Mm. And the very funny thing in retrospect is that the man they hired to do a rewrite to make Woody less of a dick was Joss Whedon. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. Well, that's too bad. I and guess... Woody is still a dick yeah. in Toy Story 1. <laughs> I thought I thought you meant they had to digitally edit out Tim Allen's problematic asides that he kept making into uh, the microphone or something. Do you think any parts as, as Bo Peep in Toy Story is sort of the Christine McVie of Toy Story? Woof. Um, now you've really <laughs> said something. Uh, yeah, Bo, word salad. <laughs> Bo Peep, though, hard to stand. Like, what was she really giving ultimately? And also, why would he have Bo Peep? Yeah, I don't get that either. For some reason, my <laughs> ex-boyfriend Sebastian was super into Bo Peep in that movie. Was like extremely upset that that character got folded out of the franchise for a little while. I'm like, you sh you, and only you have that opinion. Even Annie Potts does not care. No, right. I will say I liked that her kind of face had that very old classic Barbie look. Like 1960 Barbara Millicent Rogers look. Uh but otherwise, no, I know Annie Potts. I, I'm, I'm still mostly standing her from any day now and uh, uh, designing women. Exactly. Uh, well, those are some of our favorite problematic things that occur. Uh, also, you know what? I watched Apocalypse Now recently. I actually really did like it. Was uh, that the first time you'd ever seen it? No, I saw it, I think, in a cinema studies class when I was 14. But yes. can I just say, that is the problem with being a movie fan. You can't just watch it once and then you've collected that thing forever. Eventually you realize, oh, I need to rewatch this thing that I only have a vague memory of because I saw, you know, whatever, in a college lecture hall when I was 19. You've got to refresh. Uh, but anyway, do I sound like <laughs> someone who would recommend Apocalypse Now? No, go ahead and watch that. Yeah, not a lot of actors singing in Apocalypse Now. There sure is not. Uh, we will be right back. And we're back with the spiciest part of the episode. Arguably the rudest. <laughs> this will be very rude, yes. Oh, I'm excited. Great. Uh, I'm, I'm ready to put on my Stephanie Tanner how rude voice for you. <laughs> uh, it's Keep It. And Kyle Buchanan, uh, I, I think you, you are familiar with the attitude that one should imbue a Keep mm -hmm. It with. And I'm excited to hear what you have to offer here. I must issue my keep it to everyone saying that the Batman is the sexiest Batman movie ever. Oh. A lot of people I love and respect are saying this, and they are simply wrong. Uh, Zoe Kravitz, hot as a person. Robert Pattinson, hot. Magazine shoots that they're doing, also hot. 
but those things do not make for the sexiest Batman movie. This is a Bruce Wayne who has probably never had sex in his life. Mm -hmm. There is no sexual energy to the film beyond just appreciating how beautiful actors are. And when people say this is the sexiest Batman movie ever, it's giving real, I've only seen one Batman energy. <laughs> like, Nicole Kidman as Dr. Chase Meridian did not throw herself at Batman <laughs> and use the bat signal like a you up text to be paid dust like this. She wanted to fuck Batman so bad. That was like the lustiest performance just shy of the paper boy that Nicole Kidman has ever given. That is like the performance that you give when you've been married to Tom Cruise for 11 years. Mm. Um, Michelle Pfeiffer is Catwoman. Come on. Like incredible sexual energy. Chris O'Donnell and Val Kilmer hot. Joel Schumacher, who directed those movies, had sex with what? Up to 20,000 people. It shows those movies <laughs> are so sexual to the point where like they had to start walking it back. Like the Chris Nolan movies. Yes, I will concede. Not sexy at all. Because they push things too far. And I do kind of want you to push things a little too far when it comes to sexy Batman. Uh, I would say the new Batman movie is as sexy as the song Something in the Way off Nevermind, which I believe plays <laughs> nine times during the course of the film. <laughs> it is the dreariest song. It is the dreariest movie. For a, a, a movie with that runtime, I did find it bearable to watch. Sometime, sometimes a snooze, mostly bearable. But you're right, like... The, the quote-unquote tension between those two characters, when they started kissing, it was like two like gothic portraits were being pressed together or something. It was not, it, it was not giving, oh, it's time to fuck. When they start kissing, it is the moment in the movie where you can tell both characters acknowledge, well, we're in a movie and we should kiss. Um, and I do feel like there's a kinship that they have, but it's not sexy. Go ahead and have sex. What's stopping you? It's three hours long. Have a sex scene in there. Like... <laughs> I don't know. When people say this is the sexiest Batman movie, every director has kind of come at the sexiness of Batman in a different way. Tim Burton was like perverted and weird and making you wonder if you find a comedian hot, Michael Keaton, not the sexiest person, but, you know, opposite the women he was cast as made him kind of sexy uh, just by soaking that in. Even someone like Zack Snyder, like... One thing Zack Snyder will do is show you a hot man. Yeah. Like, and he will give that man a shirtless scene. He's so heterosexual that it becomes like homosexual adjacent. Like he's the guy in the frat house who like touches your bicep and is like, you've been lifting, bro. Like he appreciates that, <laughs> you know? And so when people say this is the sexiest Batman ever, I wish I could go on that journey with you. I will look at their magazine photo shoots and pretend that was the film that I saw. Wow, Lady Freeze really pulled your plug this week. My God. <laughs> yeah, they will not be sending me to the Kula. No. <laughs> I want to shout out on SNL this week when Zoe Kravitz hosted. Uh, Kate McKinnon donned the Michelle Pfeiffer Batman Returns apparel and made a Jewish goes, I'm a cat who has a whip. Like, how? Wh why did we put a whip with a cat? It's so shocking. But uh, I guess a cat tail is kind of like a whip. I mean, they're literally cat and nine tails, right? That's true. But like, also the outfit. I mean, like, again, Zoe Hot, she looks good in it. But it's like, embrace it. If you are going to embrace the fact that your main character is literally dressed in like a $100,000 bat suit, stomping around like these cr like normal ass crime scenes, then and you can let Catwoman look like a cat, not just have like a hat that might have the slight suggestion of cat ears. It's like, come on, go for it. Embrace it. Go wild. And that's what I wanted. I want a little bit more wildness. I think Batman is sexier when it feels wilder. 
Did you know that one time I met Julie Newmar and I asked her who her favorite Catwoman was and she said Michelle. So taste. Hey, there you fucking go. Yes. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Anyone with any taste thinks Michelle is the not just the hottest Catwoman woman ever, not just the best Catwoman ever, but to me, the best performance we've gotten in any comic book movie. And listen, sometimes they get it right. And sometimes Hollywood is interested in those movies. But that is a performance that deserves an Oscar. Michelle Pfeiffer is also one of those people where like the X axis of talent and the Y axis of hotness are like unbelievably high together. We rarely get that. That's what, what, I, what I call the Marlon Brando quotient, you know. Incredible. And not just someone who happens to be talented, but someone who's like deeply talented and can give Interestingly so many different talented. types of performances. Yes, definitely. My keep it this week, ran amok on Twitter. It is baffling and, and built for snark. The Bite My Thumb community group uh, of Britain, a theater group, issued a statement following uh, a performance of Rent, which you might know is a rock musical that was actually a movie this award season, Kyle, called Tick, Tick, Boom, about the life <laughs> yeah. of Jonathan Larson, who, in fact, ended up writing Rent. Mm-hmm. Um, you're going to like it. Uh, anyway, somebody stormed out of this production after uh, the song Today For You, which the Angel, the drag queen of the show, sings in a you know fruity fashion. Uh, somebody stormed out after screaming, I didn't realize this show was about gays. <laughs> what did you think it was about? Did you, in order to get the tickets, didn't you have to type rent into the computer? Don't like the, doesn't the drag queen appear initially? Also, I mean, like the clothing choices alone, it's in a city. The, no, the word rent implies <laughs> there's going to be a gay person somewhere just by sheer virtue of the fact that people are paying to live in a city. Uh, it's just one of these painful I, I I know like homophobia is real and horrifying and people just scream things at random and people are victimized by sheer virtue of being next to someone they don't even know. Come on. You it is on you to know that a show might have a gay person and it's a theater. My God, the usher is probably gay. Jesus Christ. I don't want to say that this person is a crisis actor, but if I were in uh, that performance and somebody stood up and shouted that, it would be the most incredible performance of Rent I think I probably would have ever seen. Like, it would have been turbocharged with camp. It would have, if, if anything, like, made the whole thing gayer just because you would be talking about it and excited about it for, you know, at least two weeks. I mean, La Vibo M right there. You know what I'm saying? Living it. Uh who is your favorite cast member from the original Rent, Kyle? Well, the thing is, the only time I ever saw Rent on stage, you know, we're not talking about the the movie version. I saw it in a touring production. Amy Nicholson um, brought me to it because she was reviewing it for the LA Weekly. And the star was uh, Constantine Maroulis. Fuck yeah. <laughs> oh my God, do I miss the era of idol like runners up? maybe getting Tony nominated. I loved that. And you know what, Lewis? It was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> it was so bad. I was like, wait, is this supposed to be good? Is this just a bad touring production? What's going on? I really wish someone had stood up and decried how gay it was. I wish it had been gay enough to prompt that sort of reaction. I wish I had stood up and done that and stormed out. You know what's something we get in L.A. that um, people should be jealous about is at the Hollywood Bowl every year, they stage a musical. And it's only it's very short lived, but they will stunt cast it. And it's always so surprising who gets into these roles. 
I believe I brought her up once this episode already. I saw Chicago, um, not just with Ashley Simpson as Roxy Hart and not just uh, Drew Carey as Billy Bigelow, but Lucy Lawless as uh, Mama, which wow. not intuitive casting, but my God, no. was I eating that up. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect to me, actually. Uh, so I think we, the, the best version we got of that was Nicole Scherzinger in... Oh, in in Rent, I believe. That's right. Um, yeah, didn't she do it at the Bowl? Correct. Nicole Scherzinger, my favorite person we just... Who has like... Who is like an A on so many metrics of talent, and yet we are absolutely puzzled what she should be doing in this lifetime. Christine McPhee is Mimi. Could you see it? I mean... You're <laughs> you're doing this to see my reaction. You're, yes, this, I am. This is this is like who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? Because you're getting the gas right visual now. medium. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I can't see that. I don't see Christine as she's not. Um, shall we say overly expressive? <laughs> she would she would bring untapped uh, and untappable reserves to the role. Right. Right. Uh, arguably, only reserve to the role. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, Kyle, thank you so much for being here. My God. I mean, you're in addition to being a a great friend and a legend of Los Angeles, you are a a wonderful talker and wonderful lover of movies. So thank you for bringing all of that to this. Anytime, LV. Also, uh, for LA resident people, I want to say that I will be at the Hammer Museum this Saturday introducing the weirdest fucking thing. It is the we're screening the 1962 Emmy Awards because it's been 60 years since 1962, which sounds unbelievable but it's true and uh i'll be talking about how marvelous this telecast is come and join us i think we should all be watching archived award shows in theaters and i'm hoping this kick starts a trend please tell me how did this come about because this is such a fever dream of you-ness like right. did they ask you to do this did this just come out from you yeah no they sent me an email they're like well you seem like the, you know the kind of weirdo who's into this sort of thing and i said I, I literally said, this is so strange. I have to do it. I have yes. to do it. You know, It's so you. That must have been the fastest yes you've ever given. Yes. No. No. When, they, when I got asked by the Oscars to do the red carpet, I'm like, oh, good. So someone can hear me. Right. Yeah. Like I belong somewhere. Okay, great. Great. Um, anyway, thank you uh, for joining us. Also, Blood, Sweat and Chrome by Kyle Buchanan is in bookstores now. We'll see you next week. Keep It is a Crooked Media production. Our senior producer is Kendra James. Our producer is Caroline Reston. And our associate producer is Brian Semmel. Our executive producer is Ira Madison III. But I, Louis Fertel, do a good job too. Our audio engineers are Charlotte Landis and Kyle Seglin. And the show is mixed and edited by Charlotte Landis. Thank you to our digital team, Matt DeGroote, Nar Melkonian, and Milo Kim for production support every week. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. 